Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. The Stackwaddy game, uh, this time, these are monsters of rock, okay? Uh, five groups uh, who took part in one way or another in the Monsters of Rock festivals that took place over a long period of time. Right, go on, hit me. And one yeah. of them, one of them is not real. Okay. Okay. Yeah. These are the five. Here we go. Corrosion of conformity. <laughs> that is really funny. Corrosion of conformity. All right, yeah. I already suspect that might be the ringer, but go on. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The bloody chamber. Okay, very good. Yes, yeah, slightly gothic. Rat with two T's. Yep. Biohazard. Yep. And thunder. Okay, well, look, t- tragically, I know rat exists. Okay. I know yeah. they do. They're a kind of slightly poodle headed, uh, <laughs> kind of metalish band. Biohazard, I know exists from my time working uh, with the Mighty Kerrang magazine. Okay. Uh, what was the last one again? Oh, God, can't remember the elder. Thunder. Thunder. I think Thunder exists too. So it's between the Bloody Chamber and Corrosion of Conformity. Those are absolutely brilliant. Bloody Chamber. <laughs> Dave, I'm going, I, I, knowing you as I do, I would imagine that Corrosion of Conformity is the one that you have made up. No, I didn't. No, no. They existed. Uh, the one I made up was The Bloody Chamber, which is the name of a novel by Angela Carter. So there you go. Fantastic. Uh, so Corrosion of Conformity. Boy, that's a stinking name, isn't it? That's an absolutely terrible name. But it did, they did actually, they walked to the earth and they played Monsters of Rock. It's terrible. It's kind of it's cumbersome. Ago. It's pedestrian. Oh, it's hard to oh, even pronounce. It's, Again, it's like classic thing. As you imagine the meeting with someone says, uh, let's call ourselves Corrosion of Conformity. Hey, wait everybody, a minute. Everybody punches the air. Yeah, that's God. it. So what have you got? All right, I've got for you five tribute bands. 
right? Oh, all right. Five okay. tribute bands. One of these is fictitious. Okay, four of them are real. And they are, in no particular order. They are Oasis-ish. <laughs> That's Oasis-ish. <laughs> Maybe Gaga. Okay. Oasis. Maybe Gaga. Led Zepp again. <laughs> Yeah, There's proxy music. <laughs> I love these. They are funny. They're they? all Pro- good. Proxy music and the Foe Fighters. Oh, good grief! So it's Oasis. I wouldn't know Maybe. where to. God, um, the I'm gonna. I can. They're all magnificent. I can only hazard a wild guess. Maybe Gaga is the ringer. Oh no! Did I get it right? <laughs> I thought of that one. And I, when I thought of it, I was so pleased. I thought that is just so obviously waiting to, to happen. That, um, well, you know do, you know why I, do you know why I chose it? Because I think you, you chose a solo act there. And it's oh, right, okay. slightly less plausible with a solo act, isn't it? You go, it comes maybe Gaga. You know, whereas a group yeah. calling themselves Led Zeppelin again or Ned Zeppelin or yeah. whatever, you know, it's somehow more plausible. But, I was uh, going to try on Emerson Fake and Palmer oh. and, and Counter Fate Bush, which I thought was quite funny. But uh, actually, there's a great band I was going to include in this. It's, it's, it's a band called The Remains. That's good, isn't it? It's a Ramones tribute band, The Remains. Oh, that's very good. That's a good name. That's very good. And also, there are a load of all female bands. Uh, again, these are all real. The Iron Maidens, there's ACDC. <laughs> and there's and there's the Duran Duran all female band Joanne Joanne. Joanne Joanne is good. Very good. You could have been, that's good. That's all very good. Very good. But look, I think we need to discuss. Go I need on. to discuss rock statues, statues in rock. Oh, because God. our producer, our producer, the mighty Magic Alex, has <laughs> been producing these podcasts from London and has only recently gone up to uh, back, back back to his uh, his uh, native territory of Redditch. And he mentioned the other day that in Redditch there is a, a, a statue of uh, their only other famous son, apparently, apart from Charles Dance, which is John Bonham. Right. So if you go to some square in Redditch, you see a kind of a kind of concrete mock-up or stone mock-up, bronze, whatever it is, of the of the Giant's Causeway, which was the, uh, the basic uh, format for the uh, for the Houses of the Holy album scene. And there, in the middle of it, thrashing all manner of percussion, is John Bonham. And my my feeling is. Are all rock statues ridiculous and wrong? They I don't think... seem right to me. I mean, just you know, the association is with great statesmen, statesmen and responsibility and suits and waistcoats and law and order, and um, you know, and all those things are kind of antithetical to your rock values, aren't they? The idea of seeing when you see a guitar in in bronze <laughs> or a leather jacket or whatever it doesn't seem right to me what do you it think? doesn't it doesn't right I, it doesn't seem right and uh, i i line up here on this subject behind danny baker who i'm sure we've mentioned this in the past thinks that statuary you know the art of making statues is is something that's um never quite come to terms with the central aesthetic challenge of uh, making stone monuments of, of the men of our times, which is the trouser. Oh, right, the trouser. Okay. The trouser is your basic problem. Now, if you look at statuary, it's a difficult word to say, 
you know, it, it's kind of, two, it's got two golden ages, hasn't it? It's got the kind of Greek and Romans, yes? Yeah. And then it's got the Victorians. And very often the Victorians self-consciously emulated the Greek and Roman style of statuary, didn't they? So you very often will see statues of 19th century statesmen where they're dressed like Roman senators because that's the form of clothing. You know, that's they were, right. they yeah, were emulating they were emulating that kind of thing. Whereas if you go into the rock age where you're dealing with the trouser all the time, you know, and if you if you watch the ruttles, all you need is cash. You know that, you know, what, what it's all about the trousers. It's all about the trousers. <laughs> that's right. It's what Leggy Man the band says, wasn't it? <laughs> what was it about the band? You're like, I think it was the trousers. <laughs> that's what it's about. And uh, and so there is a particularly horrible statue that I've actually seen in, in the, not in the flesh, in the brass or whatever it's made of, uh, of Phil Linnett on Grafton oh, yeah, Street Grafton in Street Dublin. Dublin. Yeah. And he's wearing kind of leather trousers. I'm sorry, it looks ridiculous. If you go to Liverpool, you can't move for statues of the Beatles. And, and I'm sorry, you just, they, they, they disappoint. You know, they, they don't carry the magic for the Beatles at all. Have you seen the one of Bob Marley in Kingston? Absolutely. Is that upon Thames or Jamaica? No, <laughs> Kingston on Thames, that would be great. Sounds like Bentall's. Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. There's one of John Lennon in Cuba. There's an Elvis in Memphis. There's lots of Elvises in Memphis, I think. There's, there's one reasonably good one of, of Amy Winehouse, I think, in, in, in Camden Market. But most of them, they just look embarrassing. And what are, what are they there for? It's just a photo opportunity. Shall I tell you someone, what? They... Someone, to, someone to put a, a you know, traffic cone on their head. Shall I tell you what they're there for? I think sculpture is a kind of, um, it's, a, it's a kind of supply-driven industry. It's not demand-driven. Nobody thinks, how shall we remember, you know, kind of the great Jimmy Greaves at Spurs or something like that. They don't think, let's build a statue. No, it's just not what occurs to people at all. The people who want to build statues are those whose living is made building statues. You know, they're constantly looking for, you know, places to do them. And let me tell you, I know, I know a very successful sculptor who's, he won't be listening to this, um, and I won't mention his name. And he's German, and he's a friend of a friend, and he's done very, very well of statuary over a long period of time. He's a bit older than I am. Do you know why he's done really well out of statuary, Mark? Because pretty much all German cities, thanks to the efforts of the RAF, have huge great holes in the middle of them. Yes? Oh, right. Oh, needed filling. They need filling. They need filling. With something so, that recognises why they might have had great holes in the middle of them in the first place. Whatever. And so, you know, there is a massive demand for huge, great, monumental sculptures to put in these in these holes, you know. So uh, it's, a, it's a supply-driven industry. That's my point. It's not demand at all. And it wouldn't bother me if every... I don't, I don't believe in toppling of statues by kind of, by riot, you know. I think, have a committee, do it in an organised fashion. Do it in an organised way. So it's in the interest of statue makers to be lobbying constantly to build statues. They're yes. ringing up whatever town Haircut 100 came from and said, do you think Les Nimes should have a statue? Let me, I'm the man for the job. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it wouldn't bother me if every rock statue on the planet Earth, if I woke up tomorrow morning and they weren't there, would not bother me at all. I don't think the kind of 
the memory of the music and all that stuff will be in any way affected. Because actually, serious point here. You know, it's like I've ranted in the past about why why we always giving musicians awards. You know, and you know, remember the greatness of this person or that person. Because the beautiful thing about music, recorded music, is it's there forever, and it either it's either inside your head or it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah. Precisely. You're not going to walk down the street and look at a statue and go, Do you know, I'll go and listen to a Phil Lynott. Let me go and put a yeah, send this <laughs> immediately. That <laughs> reminds me. It's not the way it works, is it? No, at all. So they, you know, they, the the greatest memorial to all musicians is their recorded music, and the kind of the affection that we have for it in in our heads, you know, our hearts. That's that's more important than anything put up on a street corner. What's the affection you have for Oasis, though? Because we were talking about this the other day, and I realised we had a a, a very different. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go and get a micrometer. That much. That much. Jeweler's eyepiece. Yes, required to see the amount of affection. I realise we had a different difference of opinion there. My feeling about Oasis, I kind of love Oasis in principle. I know that upsets you. And I think, the reason for that, I think the reason for that is I love them kind of journalistically, you know, because if you'd worked on magazines, and I would have been on Mojo and Select at the time, you became very fond of bands who you put on the cover. And they sold a lot. Absolutely. And so the, you just couldn't help but be affectionate towards them. And the thing about Oasis was it was just an absolutely fantastic story, I thought, at the time. You know, there they were. They were discovered in some sticky-floored bar in Glasgow, weren't they? And signed pretty much on the spot. The brother joins, the elder brother joins the group on the condition that he can save them by being the sole songwriter, which is a marvellous drama itself, and a little bit of attention. The, um, there's an instant mythology about the group. I remember suddenly the whole country was talking about, the whole country, the rock press, was talking about Giggs McGuigan, Paul Bonehead Arthurs. These guys seemed like real interesting characters. It had all the dynamic of the Warring Brothers. So you've had the Kinks and you've had the Beach Boys and you've had Dire Straits and stuff. You've got more of that. There, there, there was something remarkable about their utter lack of stagecraft, which I thought was just an interesting thing. You know, that Liam Gallagher during guitar solos would simply sit on the drum riser and drink lager out of a tin. Everything about them was just remarkable. And I love the noise they made. It was completely conventional rock music, but with trademarks of all those songs that you've grown up with, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and T-Rex and the Kinks and Abra and stuff. And um, somebody once said that in order for a song to be a big hit, it's got to have a certain percentage of familiarity about it. It has to be about 30% familiar or whatever. Well, let's be honest, their songs were about 70% familiar because they were based on other songs, Dave. They were. Transparently, I interviewed Noel Gallagher for Mojo, and I, he was absolutely fantastic. He was telling me where he'd stolen his riffs from. You know, he said that, that you know, that the, the New Seekers were suing him for Shaker Maker. Do you remember that? I want to teach the world to sing. Oh, and that the Beatles, and they'd stolen that from the Beatles flying. And he was going on about how the Beatles had stolen so much from Arthur Alexander and the Shirelles, you know. And he said he'd stolen cigarettes and alcohol from T-Rex. He'd stolen stuff from Abba. He'd stolen from Crowded House, from YouTube. Told me precisely which songs he'd stolen from. And I was rather impressed by that. Oh, that was real transparency, you know. So, you know, I, I, I thought there's a story. They're a fascinating group. And they, it will run and run and they will reform. But you mm -hmm. detest them, don't you? Well, no, I, I kind of, it's exaggerating to say I detest them. I never think about them at all. Um, I, I found myself... <laughs> dignify kind of, them with a thought. <laughs> I found myself, it was quite interesting. You know, I remember, you know, Mark Cooper, with whom we were talking the other day, 
and Mark Cooper was kind of head of music at the BBC. I remember Mark and I going going for lunch sometime. God, it must have been the late nineties. We go for lunch from time to time. We'd known each other a long time. And I said, we're in this restaurant in Soho, and I kind of looked around, looked furtively over my shoulder, and said, said Mark, are Oasis any good? And he said, no, they're terrible. And I thought, we're the only two people in the world who, who kind of know this, you know what I mean? Because everywhere else, the kind of, the, the, what was interesting about Oasis at that time, you know, Britpop, Cool Britannia, all that stuff that Daniel Rachel's written about, you know, in, in a book all about it, 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 it was a national kind of obsession. You know, that people, that, that A, people who, that people didn't just quite like Oasis. They madly, insanely over- Oh, they absolutely adored them. Yeah. No, but they didn't, I don't know how much of it was genuine adoration. I think a lot of it was, it's kind of like you say, it's a big story. Uh, and, you know, you, you couldn't listen to a news bulletin without somebody going on about Oasis, who were the biggest band since the Beatles. No, they weren't. Not no, for a minute, not for a second, but just that was a story that kind of fitted the time, you know. You know the resurgence, what? all that stuff, you know. They, they, you know, they keyed into the old tradition. They had the right haircuts. They came from the right part of the country. All that stuff. And people just loved, you know, and it's a classic case. People always think that hype comes from above. No, it doesn't. Hype comes from below. Hype is what the audience does to itself, you know what I mean? And so what people loved about Oasis was kind of overrating them, like mad, you know what I mean? Which is entirely what happened with their, with their album reviews, wasn't it? Because each album was, every time they got reviewed, they're basically reviewing the one before. Yes. They put out quite a good, in fact, a very, very good first album, you know, and that got iffy reviews. And the second album came out, which wasn't quite as good. And everyone said it was a masterpiece. Yeah, absolutely. The third album was absolutely incredible, which was actually the third album was a stinker, wasn't it? <laughs> and also people weren't really reviewing the, the, the band. They were reviewing the, the, the haircuts and the clothes and the story and the people. And the see, so people, you see that. That's what comes back to what I was going to say. Listen, I don't feel terribly strongly about them one way or another. They don't keep me awake at night. Um, but if I ask you to tell me what's great about the kinks, you say, well, you really got me, Waterloo Sunset, days, whatever. When people want to tell me what's great about Oasis, they go, well, it's a great story. It's a great movie. Oh, no, I agree with that. No, that's it's true. all that stuff. There are two or three great records. But, you know, no, I, I totally agree with that. And I did love the fact that he was so honest, Noel Gallagher, when I talked to him, because no musician ever wants you to think that they've nicked an idea. They want you to think that everything's completely original. I thought this up. I thought up this chord sequence. I thought up this melody. Whereas, of course, consciously or all subconsciously, they're constantly nicking chord sequences from other people. Absolutely. They can't help it. They no, can't help it. Sure. I thought it was quite brave of him just to say so. He didn't care what anyone thought, you know. No side to him at all. Interesting guy. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Word Lockdown special. Call it Herd Immunity. It's always nice to hear from you. And uh, we're particularly grateful for, um, who is it used to say this? I'm particularly grateful for Mr. R. Smith of of stone time is it cyril fletcher in there? Cyril Fletcher sounds like it's something that's from the live program also. yeah it was yeah oh, it could have been it could have been that, that's live exactly him with, his, with his bow tie on yeah giles <laughs> uh, fraser has been using lockdown to record his uh, idea of the generic british rock star story as might be told through the album covers of this person so to get the idea uh, you know, he suggested in 1965, the album would be, cover would be the one in black and white with the group in the Soho Club alleyway. We can well imagine that. That's we? so true, it's isn't it? It's kind of, you Perfect. know, it's, it's blues breakers. or it's Yeah, uh, it is. Exactly. Zoop, it's early Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Zoop Money's big roll band, all yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, and then in 1967, the one where they're all dressed up as Persian courtiers, Holding golden jewels, yes, yeah, that's very kind of aristocracy. It is protal horror, perfect, spooky tooth, and so forth. Number say 1968, the one I can't, I can't think of a direct example, but it, this is still so evocative. He talks about the one where all their faces are painted as sad clowns. Oh boy, I can imagine that kind of thing. That's so good, isn't yeah, it? They, they, yeah, they are so funny. They're very good. There's a lovely one, 1970, he says, <clears throat> the standard album cover was the one with the terrible Alan Aldridge drawing of a three-headed dragon. Yes! <laughs> yes, that's kind of rock underground, isn't it? Uh, 1972, the one on a Provence beach where he is in stonewashed denim and pretending to push his girlfriend into the sea. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> 1974, the one where he is bare-chested and handling a massive snake. Oh, oh yeah, yes. well, that's... Would that be David Coverdale? I suppose it probably would be, wouldn't it? Something like that. Yeah, I'm sure there's many rock stars who've handled a snake at some time or another in their, in their career. So... Uh, oh, there's one more here, 1975. Oh. The one designed by Hypnosis with massive orbs on a lawn. Yes, That's perfect, orbs, isn't it? Orbs on a orbs lawn. Orbs on That's, a lawn. I'm going to suggest that, actually. I'm going, I'm going to speak to Aubrey Powell of uh, Hypnosis later today, and I'm going to suggest that to him. What is the hypnosis cliché? Is it orbs on a lawn? You know, he's probably got his own ideas. Well, um, tell him we've also mentioned uh, Houses of the Holy and the Giants Causeway already in this podcast. So uh, it's it's uh, hypnosis are written all over it. Well, last time I, sh- I spoke to him, he showed me the he still has the receipt from the bed and breakfast in Northern Ireland where he spent a week 
waiting for the weather to calm down to and take isn't those that amazing pictures. That you can't just do that digitally. You actually literally have to sit and wait for the weather you to improve. Sit, sat and waited. And Fantastic. it was supposed to it was supposed to be the whole family. It was four of them there. And they ended up they could only use the kids. Yeah, yeah. This is Word, podcasting for the lockdown. We're not going on a summer holiday. So lockdown has had you know a drastic effect on all kinds of professions for whom we you know extend to whom we extend our sympathy and obviously actors and you know theaters are closed you know there's no filming going on all that kind of thing but (laughs) but i have noticed that the inactivity of actors has resulted in them in them allowing themselves to indulge in something which i think is really bad which is kind of no no effort activism of the kind exemplified by i think you may remember it early on uh they did the imagine a, video a video with a oh, little singing a verse of imagine oh it was a girl called gal gardo i think it was she seems a really nice person you know she's famous through as a wonder woman is it whatever i lose track of all this film but uh but honestly, it ran into such, such objections. You'd have thought all other... <laughs> Do you remember the New York Times comment about that? The New York Times said, uh, you might say that, that every crisis gets the multi-celebrity car crash pop anthem <laughs> it deserves. And this one has got it. And I thought that was just absolutely perfect. Well, the Black Lives Matter... Um, you know, cause has got a very similar thing recently. I don't know if you've seen this. This has appeared in the last couple of weeks where you just get a variety of kind of actors can't help looking pampered. They just can't, there's nothing they can do about it. You know, they sit there in their, in their apartments in Hollywood. And their hair and makeup is absolutely immaculate. (laughs) Well, possibly. And they stare into the camera and they go, I take responsibility or something. Just a succession of them. You you just think, please, God, you must have thought better of this by now. Why couldn't you think better of it before you did it? And the reason they can't think better of it is an actor sitting at home. They're starved of the one thing that they need more than money, more than... Notices more than Oscars. Attention is what these people live on, and so if nobody's it's soon the first call they get saying, "I wonder if you'd mind being part of it." They they're there, they're there. Absolutely. Are they possibly thinking of his work? Aren't they? Great, I'm back on. Yeah, and and, uh, and we were talking about this the other day that um, that uh, what's her call? what's her face Emma Emma Watson. Emma Watson of oh god yeah from Hermione uh, from from, uh, from 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 Harry Potter yeah has yeah. has been elevated to the board of the parent company of Gucci I think is one of the big fashion brands uh, and, and let me tell you all these fashion brands are owned by some very sinister sinister look sinister people you know what I mean uh, you know you, you you would not people you'd warm to at all I would imagine and she's been elevated to the board and of course she has to be announced as actor and activist I know. All it's actors. very hard not to be cynical but i think also i think that actors feel that being an actor is not enough i think there's part of the things so that maybe that sounds a bit superficial 
<laughs> and that they should be <laughs> that they should be doing something with some real substance. And actually, I mean, what to what extent are they activists? Are they really out in the front line campaigning, or are they just people lend their names to causes? I really, I, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, but, if you but, look at Aaron Paul in that recent one, which I, I do suggest anyone, uh, anyone, uh, in fact, we'll put a link. Should we put a link to it below? Oh, but, please. Uh, yeah, maybe not actually, but Aaron Paul, you know, the kind of the, the, the Oscar winning performance he puts into this thing where he's saying, I stand against hate. Well, this is absolutely breathtaking. And who was it who said, was it, um, was it Carrie Fisher who said it's so hard to, to, to spot real sincerity in Hollywood? She said, yeah, she said they do fake sincerity so, so well. well. That's their job is to do fake sincerity. But the idea of actor and uh, an activist, you know, Next time you hire a painter and decorator, have a look on the business card and see if it says decorator and activist. <laughs> you know, when you go and see the doctor, there's a plaque outside saying medical doctor and activist. You know, no, because that would be fucking stupid. You know, <laughs> there's no more reason actors are no more activists than any of them teachers or engineers or absolutely anybody, you know what I mean? But it is because, I suppose it for the reason you say, that inside they think what they do is not worthy. I, I think that's true actually, yeah. which of course is absolute nonsense to anyone who can't act like you or I are yeah. immensely impressed by, by what they've achieved. Yeah, but yeah. I, it doesn't seem to be substantial enough and also I must be doing something with my celebrity to seem to be doing something beyond that, something of real worth and substance. Um, so yeah, complicated, very complicated. And, uh, what, yeah. effect, what effect is lockdown going to have on, 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 on musicians? Because you, oh. you, you, think, you think, you know, that so many people are sitting around just on their own Learning a new instrument, reading books, practicing, becoming extraordinarily adept at something they'd never played—the mandolin or whatever—and uh, and are they are they developing ideas about their station? Are they developing ideas where they think, well, this, I've just read um, you know Ulysses by James Joyce. I think there's a concept album here, and it's a concept album with me playing all the instruments. Is it? I don't know. I, uh, there'll certainly be a lot of kind of you know mini Todd Rundgrens, won't there? There'll be a lot yeah. of people. Be a lot of people multi-tracking themselves playing 20 instruments. No doubt about that. They'll be doing because they've got the time to do that. Um, it's hard to imagine that anybody, when they emerge from this and go back into the normal trade, will come out of it going, here's a song I wrote about a girl I met at the bus stop. Or, you know, here's a... Here's a chip on romantic tune. It won't be like that at all, will it? No, they're going to be plumbing the great verities of life, aren't they? And, and it's kind of odd because usually musicians, the life of musicians is different from the life that the rest of us lead. You know, and that's, you know, they get about and they live at a different time yeah, of the day. Yeah, yeah. They don't have to kowtow to the man and all, all that kind of stuff. Whereas during this period, they're living just the same life as anybody else. Um, and so, you know, when, when they finally get up on stage and go, well, here's a song I wrote at the depth of the, you know, the COVID-19 crisis. Are the audience going to go, yeah, okay, I recognise that. Or are they going to think, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> with something else you know we've all done that you know your life is no different from mine you know what i mean 
um, it's going to be. Don't you think also that, that, that this, is, this is another one of my theories is, is that no one's going to be want to want to be reminded of this. No Possibly one is going not. You're just not going to want in two or three months' time to look back to a world of people looking. No, no, that's true. You know, full of angst and wearing tents and wearing you know um, <laughs> face masks, queuing up outside shops on the high street. People are just going to want to forget it and they want to get into a, into a brain new. It's world. going to be like the Second World War. Nobody wants to talk about it in the years after the Second World Absolutely. War. Absolutely. Suddenly, many years later, Dad's army comes along. Yeah, and it's. It suddenly becomes the kind of... Oh, uh, yeah, there'll the be, be a load of documentaries in 10 years' time or something, but there won't be documentaries in the immediate future because no one's going to want to look back no, at it. No, no, no. So, yeah, somebody... Oh, I, there have been some good... There's been some great stuff. Uh, I've really enjoyed some all that entertainment that's been available. There's a lovely thing I saw um, by the Stasi Alternative Choir. Did you see that? Did I see oh, that? right, I think yeah, I did. Yeah, it's really yeah. good, run by a guy called Charlie Waddington, um, who's a DJ and a radio podcaster and multi-instrumentalists they did a brilliant thing with nick lowe and, um, and his son roy they did a version of what's so funny about peace love and understanding and they've just done a version of oh, dave your favorite track alone again or oh, i love they got the great johnny eccles out of uh, out of retirement it's fantastic yeah. so yeah. you know that's worth looking out for but there's all sorts of other stuff around well i even saw the the, the london symphony orchestra were doing a kind of um well they were basically they were they, all their all their musicians sitting at home, one one after the other, just explaining in their instrument. I found it really interesting. That's good. That's really good. This is this is a bassoon. This is a bassoon. You know, this is the noise lowest, it makes. Lowest note in the orchestra. You know, funny thing about bassoons is this. You know, um, I, th I found that really interesting. Just the kind That's of technical fun. stuff, Absolutely. As, as much as anything else. But. You know, somebody said at the beginning of this, somebody that I follow on Twitter, I can't remember who it was, can you imagine how many terrible novels are being written during oh, this? No. <laughs> and I think the same thing may apply to a lot of albums. You know, I think it, it will, but I'm not sure if it's going to chime with the mood in six months' time when they come out. I don't know. We shall see. I think people are going to want uh, uh, lightness and gaiety. They might do. <laughs> and dancing and swinging around lampposts. I don't know. We shall see. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So 50 years ago, this Go on. Week, Go two on. great records came out. Surely great records. John Barleycorn's Die. Which I, I just happened to have. And you happened to have that. That was completely unrehearsed. <laughs> I just reached behind me and you know. And randomly selected. Randomly selected. Isn't that a great record? Oh my I God. always hold up to, the bit. Yeah. I used that. to. I used to have that cover on on my wall. I think on my flat in Wood Green. It's fantastic. I that was the hippiest thing I'd ever seen. So did I. And also, just look at the width of Steve Winwood's flared trousers. They are gigantic, aren't they? Oh, that's true. Oh, aren't they amazing? Yeah, decent breeze and he'd take off there, wouldn't he? He would. Uh, I was thinking about him only the other day because we were out at a, a, we were out, out of London going around, a, a, for the first time in months, going around an old Iron Age fort out by <laughs> Aston Tyrold. Oh, right, that's we where. To, which is where they, which is where they got, got it together in the country, wasn't it? But that record, oh, my God. I mean, probably, where, probably where that picture was taken. Yeah, it would have been, would have been. But it had an amazing effect on me, that album, because, uh, you know, I'd listened to quite a bit of folk music before. I mean, I'd Bob Dylan and Dancing, you know, Bert Gansh, various people. And, and, but I hadn't got into that idea of medieval English folk song. And that was the first time I really, I was, how old when it came out? 15, maybe 16. And then when I was hearing the song John Barleycorn, had a real, had a real effect on me. 
started like started life as a Steve Winwood solo album that did as far as yes, I understand did, it? and then they, they you know, just decided it was going to be traffic and um you know what I think about traffic the, the thing that fascinates me is Jim Capaldi the drummer Jim Capaldi who never thought he was that great a drummer and really wanted to be a singer and was a good singer um and so you know as soon as he could he, he could give up the drum stool to somebody else they'd get somebody else in which is a great shame because I always think, you know, he's, he, he's part of the fingerprint of that group. His drumming is part of the fingerprint of that group. And you can hear it on that, on that record, particularly on, on Glad, the instrumental at the beginning. and all, all that stuff. It's, it's probably, it tends to be the favourite traffic record, doesn't it? That one. Oh, absolutely. There's a bit of the one that people like. like oh, I, I just got, I, that's what got me into, you know, um, you know, Harkwood Village Wake, uh, Steve yeah. Span, going back to Fairport Conventional, I hadn't really discovered it at that point. And, um, you know, Shirley Collins and David Graham's records. And I just got into, oh, and we got Self Portrait as well. Self Portrait also came out 50 years ago. 50 years ago this week, Self Portrait, Bob Dylan the controversial self-portrait. It's funny, I was, I was thinking about this because I, I wrote about this. I wrote about this in my best-selling book. Ah, uh, go creation. <laughs> because, uh, you know, that's 1970. 1970, it seems to me, was, was the year of kind of bootleg mania. You know, bootlegs were the big thing yeah. of, of 1970. To the extent that, uh, I think in February in 1970, the lead review slot in Rolling Stone magazine, which was of a bootleg. Well, there were a number of bootlegs. It was, yeah. uh, I think, Rolling Stone and Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan and uh, and John Lennon, and uh, it's by Grail Marcus. You know, just basically saying that uh, the big three of rock and roll. He says an album and maybe a single a year isn't enough. <laughs> well. If only you could foresee the future, you know, it could be very different. Uh, and, and felt that, you know, more stuff should be put out. These artists should be, should be releasing stuff. And, of course, in reviewing the bootlegs, what he did was what people always did with bootlegs, which is they massively overrated them because they were bootlegs, because they, they somehow got hold of them. He but actually the, said, the Lennon thing, I think is probably, yeah, it's John Lennon, the Plastic Ono Band at, at Toronto. And he says it's got, it's got more vitality than Abbey Road. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and he says that the Stones Live recording is the ultimate Stones album. It was made by somebody with a tape recorder on somebody's lap. You know what I mean? It's the ultimate like, Stones album. And so what happened in the, you know, soon after this was the artists started thinking, well, if they're getting all this, you know, approbation for kind of things that we haven't licensed, Here's some stuff we've done ourselves. You know what I mean? And, and so they, Bob Dylan's self-portrait, it seems to me, was like that. You know what I mean? It was, all right, here's a load of tapes I've got. Me at the, at the Isle of Wight. Yeah, some exactly. Stuff that, some stuff that didn't work out in Nashville. Me doing Gordon Lightfoot's Early Morning Rain and you know, That's all, right. all that kind of stuff. All the cover versions. That's it. So, yeah. Here it the all boxer is. The Boxer by Paul Simon. You've been saying we're not pointing enough out. Well, here it all is. So he put it out. And Grail Marcus reviewed this in Rolling Stone. You remember what the opening line of the review was? Well, I remember it was damning though, wasn't it? What is this shit? <laughs> <laughs> I 
that was the opening line of the review. That's brilliant. You know, the same guy six months earlier had said all this unreleased stuff. Uh, why don't they put it out? Why don't they put it out? It's but it's so great. true, is it? We've got a ton of bootlegs here. And I can remember we used to sit around, my wife collected Dylan ones and I got a load of Beatles ones. And we would sit around willing ourselves to love these records. Just thinking and thinking how exciting it was because very few other people had this recording. But the quality of it was so utterly dismal. But the yeah, other thing about yeah. self-portrait is it's a big part of Dylan's manoeuvre to kind of dismantle the image of Dylan that he created in the mid-60s, don't you think? Uh, I suppose you know, when so, he came yeah. back, When he came back with, you know, with, um, with John Wesley Harding and then there was National Skyline, you know, doing a country album and then suddenly this big collection of stuff. And it was just to kind of to, to, to wrong foot all these people who still thought it was the voice of the generation and the sage, seer and prophet, I think. The thing yeah. I can't get over um, when you look back is the John Wesley Harding was a big hit album, even in Britain. I yeah, think it was, it was number one in Britain for four weeks. Yeah. Which is extraordinary, really. Number one in the main pop chart, you know, so it was obviously up against whatever else was around in 1969. It was clearly you know, selling a lot of copies. And uh, so, you know, uh, I was listening to a bit of self-portrait earlier today and it's, uh, it's up and down, I think it's fair to say. There's a lot of down, actually. Although down. Alberta is a great record. Alberta is great. Horses is good. It's really is, good. Is Belle Isle on this record. Belle Isle is wonderful. It's absolutely yeah. terrific. But anyway, so that's, uh, that's 50 years ago uh, this week. Um, those are, and also... The Grateful Dead, Working Man's Dead, I think. That's right. Came, came out the same week. What a fantastic. Which album. many people. Three part harmonies. Oh, beautiful. Many people celebrate it no less. This is a lockdown special from The Word. You ain't going nowhere. Can we just fling our hats in the air and thank, uh, very warmly indeed, our new patrons who are Chris Brough, uh, Michael Woodedge, yeah. Fraser Allen. Andrew yeah. Slattery, Gennaro, yeah. Phil Rollinson, David Haslam, Tony Stevenson, and Peter Jones. We are immensely grateful for them. Absolutely, and the atmosphere in that the atmosphere in that presentation was about the same as the atmosphere in the game of association football last night uh, between Manchester City and Arsenal, <laughs> which I. <laughs> I tuned into. I and it's absolutely spooky. It sounds like snooker. You know what I mean? Football. The no, noise of football now sounds like snooker. Sounds that's true. Good. No, I didn't. I only saw the bits on the news, and of course, you get these, you get the goals and stuff, and there's just this, just smattering of applause. It's, it's unbelievable. Doesn't work at all. Doesn't it? Does not work. Doesn't Look, a great, uh, a great correspondence here from Owen Parker, who's written to us before. And that's a great story. Let me just read this out. He says, uh, uh, he says, have you ever heard the story about the songwriter called John Pepper? Nice antidote uh, to the ubiquitous show me a hit and I'll show you a writ stories. He got made redundant from his job uh, and with the severance pay, decided to go on a trip for a lifetime to Nashville. Upon arriving, he checked into his hotel and wandered out to the bar. Being America, people talk to you. And he got chatting to a man at the bar. And the bar, uh, this guy asked him some questions and he said he was an aspiring songwriter and he was in Nashville for the first time. And he said, he just thought of a really good time for a song on the plane over. And he reached into his bag, got his notebook and said, it's in another's eyes and when it was time for his new drinking buddy to leave uh, the man announced he was called bobby reynolds who's the bass player with the mavericks and the husband of trish yearwood i met him once very nice geezer actually 
And he asked Peppard for a card. And some months later, a bundle landed on Peppard's doorstep and there's forms for him to sign, telling him that that first night in Nashville, uh, Reynolds, that, on that night in, in Nashville, Reynolds had gone around to Garth Brooks' house and written a song with his title. And here was his 33.3% cut of the song. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? He said, this is, I was, this is unheard of in the music industry. Sure, if Brooks, Brooks wouldn't miss the money, uh, uh, but it never ever works out like that. This was released as a duet between Brooks and Yearwood and won a Grammy in 1998. It's extraordinary. And I'll tell, um, tell you the one thing that, that makes me think. I mean, that's really nice to hear and it's very glad that a person benefited from it. But I think to myself, I could write titles. I could sit there, I could write you 10 titles. Well, if someone's going to pay me a third well, of the amount, I'd certainly write titles. But nobody ever asks you, do they? You know, no, they and your writing career, has anybody ever asked you for a title for something? I mean, you've invented millions of titles, writing headlines for features and covers of mag cover lines of magazines. But nobody's ever rung you out of the blue and said, tell you what, you're Mark Allen. I understand you're really good at writing titles. Um, you know, I'd like to engage you to, to come up with some titles for LPs or books or whatever. They don't do that. Do they? It's never happened. But that is an extraordinary story, isn't it? Because, I mean, I guess he might have suddenly thought, hang on, that's the guy that I met in the bar. And he might have had a, had a legal pop of him. But 33% is amazing. It's very nice. I there's nothing I love more than the story of the kind of the delayed windfall in the music business. You know, we talked about this the other week, didn't we? We were in the light of... Uh, Richard Thompson's song being used by Mark yeah, Ronson. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about Nick Lowe and uh, yeah. what's so funny about Peace, Love and Understanding. And the classic case of this, which I absolutely love, is the story of Madonna's Ray of Light. Oh, God, yes. Which, well, there's a clue. There's a clue, isn't there? The number of people who wrote the song. Aren't there it, five songwriters? Dave well, Curtis, well I, if, you, if you look, it's quite interesting. I saw a report recently that said that the average number of songwriters of, of, a, of a kind of top 50 hit in the United States, which used to be at the most two, is now five or six or seven because of the way, the way, song, the way hit records are made nowadays. There was a song recently that had 30 songwriters. I found go. a little link to it. Because, it because also the number of writers grows all the time because people come in and say, actually, that bass note... It's mine, and so they yeah, yeah, it. and they're using they samples get, exactly. They have to get it added, but um, this is the comparatively innocent time of uh, Madonna's Ray of Light, uh, which goes back to a song written uh, by a, a, a duo called Curtis Muldoon at the beginning of the seventies. I don't think it was written in nineteen seventy-one. Actually, it came out on the Purple label. Didn't no kind of hit at all. These two guys are both in in the band with Steve Howe, yes, called Bodast. And they'd written a song called Seferin, which had the refrain and the hook line, I feel like I've just been born. And, you know, and then they, they split up and, uh, and, uh, and one of the guys sadly died, in, I think in the late 70s. And then nothing was ever heard of the song again until way forward into the 90s. Um, Madonna's manager rings up William Orbit because she needs somebody to produce her new record um, and, uh, and, and asks him to send a load of ideas for songs. And he sends 13 songs along. And one of them is based on Ray of Light because he's been working with this girl, Christine Leach, 
who's who who is the niece of one of the two guys who made the record based on Seferin, you mean based on Seferin. yeah yeah and uh, and so this is one of the ideas that's sent through to Madonna, who then goes that's catchy <laughs> i'll call it ray of light or whatever you know i'll leave it to you to speculate on how much chiseling away at the finer details madonna did and how much of it was done by my committee i couldn't possibly comment but <laughs> then albert has to go back to christine leach and go that song that you wrote madonna's gonna do it at which point she goes ah, didn't actually write it that was my uncle you know what I mean? and so all that gets rode into the deal, and uh, I think fifteen percent went to went to the the living member of the Curtis Muldoon, and fifteen percent went to the estate of the of the deceased member of Curtis Muldoon. And obviously, you know, many many years later, they made a ton of money. So let's try and speculate how much. I mean, that would that was a huge hit. Plus, it was the it was the title track of the album. Of the so album, it would have been. Yeah. You're talking here. I mean, even fifteen percent. You're talking about. Significant amounts of wedge, and um, you know, for something that somebody did in 1971 and thought would never be heard of again. I love stories like that. I do. There was was a lovely one with John John Phillips and the Mamas and the Papas, who wrote a song, just made up a song after a a, a Judy uh, Collins uh, concert, and he's in the room with Stephen Stills and and Neil Young and various other people. He made up a song called "Me and My Uncle." Just made up the chords, made up the words. And somebody happened to record a, a cassette of it. And Judy Collins rang him up a bit later and said, you know, that song you wrote, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a version of it. And of course, it went on to be covered by the Grateful Dead and all sorts of other people. Joni Mitchell did an amazing version of it. And uh, he had no memory of writing the song whatsoever. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Isn't that lovely? Suddenly, yeah. the old brown manila envelope start thudding through the door. <laughs> and you think, well, that's money for us. Alex James still says he can't remember ever <laughs> recording song two by blur because he was so pissed you know yeah wonderful a little yeah. that must be a, song two must be a hell of a payday oh, for somebody you my god that use gets used everywhere it's, doesn't oh the advertising use of that is phenomenal <laughs> it's extraordinary if only if only this podcast was brought to you by the word hey.